Greetings and welcome back to Area 51 and a Half, where we talk about all things science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. I am your host, John Allen, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, we've got a great show today, because today we are talking completely about Star Wars, because by the time that we actually put this out, it will be May, May the 4th. 4th. May the 4th be with you, in fact. And may the 4th be with you. Now, before we begin, I do want to give a shout out to our number one alien, Dawn, because she has been in the hospital. She's doing all right. She's doing fine. But our podcast gave her a lot of cheer and laughter while she was in the hospital. So, Dawn, we hope you're doing well. And a big congratulations to my friend, Ree, who is getting married on May 4th because she's also a massive Star Wars nerd. Aren't we all at this point? I think we are. Since it came out in 1977, uh, I can't imagine a world now without Star Wars. Well, I mean, I've never known a world without Star Wars. That's kind of a shame, because here's the here's the thing about it. Being my age, right. and knowing when Star Wars first came out, I got to see all of that exciting technology. I got to feel that grandiose you've never seen anything like this before on the big screen feeling that blockbuster creation that yeah all that stuff i i've got to watch star wars unfold to basically the huge mountain that it is now and that that was a very different experience for me because when i when i was born return of the jedi had already been released on vhs yeah it was already getting to that point by the time you i think started being aware of it as a kid it would have been the prequels it was already this juggernaut i know as a toddler we had return of the jedi on vhs and i would watch it as a small kid and when we moved from scotland to, to to canada i had a vague recollection of this movie that i really liked watching when i was younger with the with the guy in the black armor and the light-up laser swords. I couldn't remember what it was. And then Star Wars came into the the public eye again very, very heavily with the release of the Power of the Force toys. And at that point, I'm like, oh, it's Star Wars. It's Return of the Jedi. And then I had them on video. It was all through osmosis for me because it was already there. It was already part of the pop culture landscape. Yeah, and I remember going to see Phantom Menace in the theaters. And there was this little boy who was sitting beside me with his mother. And we just happened to wind up sitting together. And they were selling all kinds of things. Like they were selling the uh, commemorative programs, the whole bit. And I I bought the boy a commemorative program. And his mother was like trying to pay me back for it. And I said, no, please, you don't understand. I Let me do this for him. Because I was his age when the first Star Wars came out. And I want him to have this. I want him to have this special experience the way that I had yeah. In 1977. That's really good of you. That's really good of you. So, yeah, like, I've never known the world without Star Wars. As where you got to see it when you were a kid. I got to watch it unfold. Yeah, you got to see everything unfold. I mean, I, w- I wish that I could unmemorize Empire Strikes Back so I could go back and watch it in theater for the first time just to hear no... I am your father. Uh, like, just, oh, man. Yeah, can you imagine watching that and having a whole audience go, gasp! Yeah, <laughs> like, I can, I imagine the 
air got sucked out of the out of the room at that point because no one would have saw that coming. It's it's hard for me to know because I was still a child, um, you know. And you and you have to understand something. Like Star Wars became this this huge thing. My dad took right. my brother and I to see it, and we were just so excited by it. And it was such a great movie to us that we said, we have to take mom to see it. Because my mom, you know, she didn't care about that kind of stuff. She liked the yeah. first Star Wars. She'd never seen anything like this at all. So because we were religious, usually mm-hmm. on Sundays, there wasn't a whole lot to do. I mean, this is back when stores were closed. Yeah. You know, it was a holy day. Um, you basically, we would go over to London to visit my, my aunt and uncle and cousins. And then we would usually come home. Right. The Empire Strikes Back is the only movie my parents ever took my brother and I to see on a Sunday. Because that just wasn't done. And yeah. Was, you know, but it was playing. We were there. We wanted to see it. We didn't want to wait till it came to St. Thomas. Right. So we just went over and we saw it. And boy, what, what an experience that was even of what itself. So every time one of these original trilogy movies came out, it was an event. Yeah. And you look at some of the footage from like a, there's a documentary that came out when it uh, came with the original trilogy when it first came out on DVD and they show all sorts of, of footage from back when it first hit and man like the, the scenes were the scenes like the, the lineups everything were insane yeah and it became very multi-generational too I mean think about one of the things that happened because um it was Austin Powers. One of the Austin Powers movies came out when Phantom Menace came out. Yeah. And I remember, remember Mike right. Myers doing the tagline of saying, if you see one movie this weekend, see Star Wars The Phantom Menace. But if you see two, then come see Austin Powers. Oh my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> I forgot about that. But think about the brilliance of that marketing yeah. and how correct that kind of was, right? Yeah. Because yeah. that's what people gravitated to. It had been a better part of a decade since we'd seen anything really relevant in terms of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. As, as far as the movies go, yeah, absolutely. But, like, that's the thing. is like, growing up watching Star Wars for me, Star Wars informed a lot of my own personal taste in film. And I don't just mean in fantasy and sci-fi. It's very much the hero's journey, and I think it's one of the best examples of the hero's journey out there. And it really is kind of what I base my outlook on other movies that are similar. Like, are the characters, are, are, are they as interesting? Does it follow? What's the journey? Where's yeah. the arc? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you have these absolutely revolutionary effects. Effects that actually didn't exist at that time. No. They made a lot yeah, of this he, stuff for this he movie. He basically created Industrial Light and Magic in order to create yeah. Star Wars. And it changed movies and movie making and movie magic forever. It did. Like, the blue screen process, the way that they created these space battles, everything was... Like, it just didn't exist. And it's hard to think of a property in the, like, 40 years between that hasn't been touched by Industrial Light and Magic. Yeah, Industrial Light and Magic has such a huge varied history in Hollywood. One of my other favorite franchises is uh, has been heavily affected, well, not affected, but touched by ILM, 
Jurassic Park series. Yeah, yeah. Now let's let's talk about that just for a little bit, Nick. Let's yeah. talk about ILM and what that meant for Star Wars because Star Wars was nominated for ten Oscars. Yes, including Best Picture. Uh, Best Supporting Actor for Alec Guinness as Ben Kenobi. Screenplay, uh, it won six. It won for art direction, one for uh, visual effects, obviously. One for costume, one for sound editing. I mean, the list kind of goes on. And the big one, score. score original yeah. score. Well, John I mean, Williams and that score is that... so iconic. In fact, it's almost more... If, when you think about the scores that John Williams has done, you immediately recognize... Uh, Star Wars and Jaws. Star Wars, Jaws, and then, then to a lesser extent, Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones. Yes. Yeah. John Williams created one of the most, I would argue, I think there is an argument for probably the most iconic score. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an argument. I'm not going to say definitely, but it's an argument. But he created something we all know, we all love, and as soon as we hear those first few Notes. We know exactly. You know what? It, I would say it is because you don't. It doesn't matter who you are. Well, you know that first refrain, that grandiose trumpeting of the Star Wars theme song, and so good. It is so good. I love it. I like to because because I'm big into Star Wars media all over. I love to listen to the Star Wars score when I'm reading or something because I like to listen, listen to some yeah. music when I read. Right. And that's one of the things I'll listen to, especially if I'm reading the Star Wars book. I'll put the Star Wars score <laughs> on because that makes sense. But yeah, no, John Williams and throughout the entire series has created some of the best scores. Like even even Revenge of the Sith, I love the score for the, the separate score. Not just the opening song, but the, the general score of the... Yeah, and you know, think about all the things that were changed even by just the first movie because... Halloween, I went out as Ben Kenobi. Like, yeah. it, was, it was guerrilla style, you know, costume making, where you'd buy a beard and blue cotton balls to it to get the white beard that he had. Yeah. And I don't know what we used for my Jedi robe or Probably anything. a bathrobe or something. Probably, I don't know. But, but uh, you know, they had these toys that weren't really Star Wars toys, but it, it changed the toy industry. We had, my dad bought yeah. this, this sword for me. And it was supposed to be a lightsaber, a knockoff of a lightsaber. And you would hold it up to the light, and it would... Then you turn the light off, and it would, like, glow. It was a glow-in-the-dark sword. So that's what I mean I used as my lightsaber, obviously. Kenner... The whole toy thing with Kenner was really interesting. They didn't realize how huge the original Star Wars movie would be. Well, nobody did. I mean, that's, yeah. that's why we have the ending that we have in Star Wars... Where it's an open ending, but... A possibility of a sequel. But, yeah, where a villain gets away. So, Kenner had not anticipated the demand that there would be for Star Wars toys. Instead of ramping up production, you could buy these cards. that ba You'd buy them, and they would basically guarantee you a Star Wars toy once it was in the store. Yeah. And I've to this day, I don't know if there's ever been anything like that since then, but... Just the, the the demand for these toys, the insanity over the oh, toys. Oh, I know. And there were some toys that you couldn't buy in the store that you had to collect certain things yeah, to the mail, mail in and, yeah. and get in. I think the original Snaggletooth was one of those. I think. Can't get, can't. I think that. actually, thinking ahead to Return of the Jedi, I think the 
Emperor's Guards were one of them. I think so, too. I know Boba Fett was. I know Boba Fett was for Empire, but that was that wasn't the thing with Boba Fett for Empire is it wasn't he wasn't it's intended to be, but the whole thing with him with the, having the spring loaded missile is that that got kiboshed and then it became a, a whole thing. So without getting too far into it, because I don't want to stray too much, I the mail away thing kind of ended when I was around five or six, so I never got to really experience something like that. I couldn't do it anyway because who could afford to buy all the things that you needed to get the mail away? Well, that's fair. I mean, now I wanted everything I could Star Wars. My birthday, I wanted figures. And this is, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. But, I mean, Christmas, birthdays, it was a Star Wars figure. That's what I wanted. What one did I not have Mm -hmm. that I could get? You know, and so they had to keep very close track of what um, I had so that they could recognize which ones to get for me. And I remember peppering my Star Wars collection of toys by going to garage sales. That's how I actually got the Death Star playset. You had the Death Star playset? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But but I got it at a garage sale. So, you know, like my parents recognized that that was probably the only way they'd be able to get me the Death Star playset. And wow, what, what fun I had with that. So I had the Death Star playset. And then for um, Return of the, or, sorry, Empire Strikes Back, I, I wound up with the Dagobah playset which would have been a christmas gift cool cool yeah some of the playsets that came out were really some of them were really neat some of them were really odd like i remember the droid factory playset i uh, had which, that too actually now that i think about it really yeah so the droid i mean a lot of the stuff that they had was like directly in the film and they they went to all of the background characters to make toys out of them and then they started making Stuff that didn't actually appear in the movie, like the droid factory, like the uh, the, the stormtrooper transport ship, which wound up actually being in uh, Star Wars Rebels and then the Mandalorian, but had never actually appeared in any of the movies when they released it. It's just weird stuff like that. that I, 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 I love Star Wars toys. I love the history of them because there is a really neat history in Star Wars toys that other toy lanes don't have. Yeah, it's almost like the, it's separate from the movies itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they really go out of their way to just make a toy of anything that, that appears on screen. The only two... There, there was only two characters from the Mos Eisley Cantina scene that was not... that did not have a toy made of them. Those two women who, were, who had the black hair and the, the green suits, they didn't make a toy of them because they... They wanted to get paid for their likeness. Yeah, and you know, and that's interesting too because that's sort of the difference between then and now. Then the movie came first and the toy came after. Now they are making toys and putting characters in the movies to sell the toys. Well, let's let's sidebar for a second. We we saw that the other day with the pork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even when you look at well, we're gonna take Batman and Robin into account here. When Batman and Robin was made and Joel Schumacher was making it. The Warner Brothers studio told him, we need to sell more toys. So they throw in these vehicles, these ice vehicles and these ice suits, just so they can make toy variations for the movie. And that is very telling of how Hollywood has been since the 90s, because a lot of the times, it's about selling toys. Yeah, and I know we're on a sidebar, but let's use the Batman series as an example. The original series, mm-hmm. where you know Tim Burton came out with a very dark... Batman for 1989 yeah. with Nicholson and McKeaton and the whole thing. Um, and then 
tie-ins and stuff follow. Yeah. He got in trouble because yeah. of the way that the Penguin looked in Batman Returns because McDonald's was like, ooh. Uh. So I can sort of see that influencing where Burton starts leaving and Schumacher comes in. It's always been rumored that that's why Tim Burton was removed from Batman Forever. I'm not saying he was necessarily removed from it for that reason, but I can see that. Yeah. I mean, we can't say One that, of the that's mitigating sure. factors. It's a factor. But yeah. let's get back to Star Wars, because that is what we are talking about today. All things Star Wars. Nick, I, let's, let's just talk, let's center on what, at the time, for me, was just Star Wars, but then became Star Wars Chapter 4 on New Hope. What made Star Wars, the original movie, so great is the fact that you had two wonderful British anchor actors. Oh, my God. And we'll talk about Alec Guinness later, but I want to talk about Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, Van Helsing himself. Okay, so we often talk about horror on this podcast because we both love horror. And, and it is a podcast about science fiction, fantasy, horror, and pop culture. Indeed it is. <laughs> so Peter Cushing, to me, was always Van Helsing. It never Now, I know I had seen A New Hope before I had watched the Hammer horror films. But it never really, because I was a kid, I never really connected that Peter Cushing was these two characters. Right. At this, po- at this point, I didn't even know who Peter Cushing was. I just knew the characters. I always really loved the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Hammer films as a kid. My mom uh, my mom introduced me to the Hammer films, and she loved those, and that was just a thing for us. And when I was old enough to finally realize it, and I actually realized how different his portrayal of Van Helsing is versus Grand Moff Tarkin, who is such a, a slimy, awful character... I mean, not an awful character. I mean, he's a good character, but he's an evil, evil, evil man. Just seeing how Peter Cushing can do one versus the other was amazing. I is, love Peter Cushing. Is he Cushing. evil or is he militaristic? I mean, because uh, evil is perspective, right? Evil is perspective. Okay, so let, let's dissect uh, Will of Tarkin for a second. Tarkin is very much behind the Emperor. Now, that's not something that we really necessarily see in A New Hope. But we can kind of glean that the fact that this guy's one in control of the Death Star. Yeah, like if the Emperor is Hitler, he's Goebbels. He sees might is power. Yeah. And power is might. You can tell that when when the uh, the one Im- Imperial guy comes up and says, Hey, we found there's a problem here. We might want to get out of here. And he's like, in our moment of triumph? Never. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's such an arrogant jerk I think point. you overestimate their... Chances of success, I think, is the the line. And it's interesting to watch a character like that play out because his downfall is his arrogance and hubris. Yeah, and that's that works for a militaristic character in that because he's got this giant weapon that can destroy planets. What could they possibly do? Well, they can shoot a, a proton torpedo down the exhaust shaft and blow the whole thing up. And, you know, looking at it from an adult, more worldly perspective. And I know there's going to be some fans out there that are probably going to disagree with me. Even though Darth Vader has become the iconic villain of the piece, Grand Moff Tarkin was actually the villain and and Vader was his Black Knight. Vader yeah. was the, the oh. secondary villain. Oh, well, like, even Princess Leia mentioned something about Tarkin 
holding his chain or something like that. Well, and, and we see that because when you, they're in the uh, chamber doing their roundtable discussion, if you will, and Vader is choking the guy using the Force because he insulted the, his outdated religion of being a Jedi and everything. And Tarkin allows him to do it for a little bit. And then he says, okay, that's enough. Yeah. And Vader, Vader. says, as you wish. Vader, release him. And so it's interesting that Vader, in the original movie, knew his place. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the thing. That like, and, and this is, of course, getting into before we knew he was Anakin Skywalker. Because when that movie came out in 19... Like, go back to 1977 here, folks. Forget everything you know about Star Wars. Just focus on seeing that movie for the first time and not knowing any of that. God, I wish I could do that. Yeah, but just... I'm asking you to try to do that, not knowing any of that. You see where Vader well, knew his place, and that's that's the thing is at that point you kind of got to look at the the relationship between them because here we have Tarkin who who doesn't have any special powers other than the fact he is a high ranking military official. We have Darth Vader who is a Dark Lord of the Sith and can choke people from across the room. And even then, we, we, even then, I don't even think they used the term Sith at that point. No, they didn't. But still, we... we well, anyway. Yeah, he was on the dark side of the Force. Yeah, he was on the dark side of the Force. Um, only a master of evil, doth. And he can choke people from across the room. So why does he give Tarkin that level of respect? Well, there's got to be something along the line where Tarkin either did something to Vader or for Vader, something along those lines. Or, or the Emperor just said... Listen to him. A, a huge possibility as well. Yeah. A huge possibility. Who, like, it, it's, it's hard to say, and, you know, because we don't want to get into the expanded universe. We don't want to get well, into yeah, the, and that's the, the thing, subsequent like, movies at there this are, point. There are expanded universe reasons for that. But yeah. just going by the movie itself, it, it gives you this kind of sense of awe and wonder. Of like, who? But it makes Tarkin so interesting. And I don't, yeah. I honestly don't feel, because we've looked at different actors that were up for the roles of, say, Han Solo, <laughs> yeah, including Christopher Walken, et cetera, et cetera, um, right? Yeah. So, Al Pacino. But, but I don't think anybody else could have played Grand Moff Tarkin the way Peter Cushing did and sold it as well. I agree with you on that. That is definitely Peter Cushing's role. I mean, imagine, uh, just just to use a contemporary, imagine Christopher Lee in that role. I don't think he would have done it the same. Yeah, f funny enough, I yeah. mean, Again, a Hammer horror star, and both yeah. of them wound up in the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. Tarkin is just such an interesting character because he, as you said about him being evil, where he sits there and, you know, Vader, Vader can't get the truth out of Princess Leia. Nobody can get the truth out of Princess Leia. And he just comes along and says, hey, I'm going to blow up your planet, sister. You yeah. want to tell me where everything is? And she says, okay, they're they're here. They're on this, this planet. And he says, okay, fine. Proceed. Yeah. And he blows up Alderaan, and she's yeah. like, what? And he's like, oh, you're far too trusting, my dear. Yeah. he He's such an eel, and such a snake. He, and you needed a British actor doing that. Oh, I know. Well, and that's the thing, is like, if you look at the Empire, if you look at all the actors, even throughout the entire original trilogy, I don't think there's a single American accent in there. Uh, well, maybe for the Empire, no. Well, for the Emperor. No, yeah. not, even, not, not the Emperor, that's a Scottish accent. Um, but... The, no, I meant in, in the Empire, like you're talking like... Yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the Imperial soldiers that we see. I, okay, With the, the storm, exception of Stormtroopers. Stormtroopers, yeah. then that's all the same voice, whatever. But 
the all of the imperial officers that we see they're all british actors and that that does a few things one it adds a certain level i don't know why but when people hear a a posh british accent it adds a sense of gravitas to it but it also makes them authority and it also makes them at least for i think north american audiences automatically untrustworthy or villainous villainous yeah yeah that's a better way of putting it and that's the thing is like if you but i don't i I don't think it's the accent i just think it's the way that they know how to do it because uh, on rupaul's drag race right they always the the big thing about it is getting to the point of the 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 spoof of match game the snatch game and one of one of the drag queens did maggie smith and did it beautifully Right. In fact, they won. They, they won the challenge. And one of the um, other drag queens tried to take him down as as he's portraying Maggie Smith about the language. Right. And he said, my dear, we invented the language. So because the reason that, that's why I'm bringing this up, because the thing is, there is a way that the posh British speak that is very clean. It's very concise. It's yeah. very um carry on very like get on with it this is and i think at this point we're also used to hearing that accent yeah keep calm carry on well also in war movies as well and it you have of course you have these officers it's easy to um attribute this kind of perspective like this kind of idea to to that yeah and it's a nice bookend so let's get into alec guinness for a minute because it's a nice bookend you have Grand Moff Tarkin coming in with this authority. He Peter Cushing plays it perfectly. It's very tight. It's very buttoned down. It comes in. It's like, I don't want any nonsense. This is what I want to have happen. Mm-hmm. And then you marry that on the other side with Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi, who is now basically narrating to us yeah. everything that's going on. It's like, yeah, it's... this. Th- let me explain how the Force works. This is how the Force works. Let me explain your background, Luke. Let, let me be the narrator here for a moment. Yeah, he's... And he does it so well. Yeah, he's an so... exposition dump man. Yeah, but, but he is, but he isn't. He's also our way into it. And that's what makes his sacrifice... So gut-wrenching. Imagine me, eight years old. I've fallen in love with this old man character. And he gets killed. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, what? But, but, we get that first remnant, that first peek at a force ghost. Yeah, run, Luke, run. You know, and and something in me triggers and goes, is he dead? Is he not dead? Yeah, what, right. what is he? What is he? And then, you know, when Luke is coming in with the, the trench run, yeah. and he's like, no, turn off your thing. Trust the force. <laughs> you know? And Luke. so we see that journey that Luke gets to take because of Kenobi. Yeah. And Alec Guinness plays, there's a certain, Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi, there's a certain level of whimsy in the character that I really love. Like, he's not He's serious, but you can tell there's like there's a little sparkle in his eye that you know that it he's... got him an Oscar nomination. Yeah. yeah, and I'll be honest with you, I think Ewan Ewan McGregor obviously his his performance is informed by Alec Guinness's performance, but some of the stuff that he really takes like that his set the sense of humor the sense of whimsy he took that in the prequel trilogy and just jumped that right off. Yeah, and and that's the sort of thing like when. 
when I look at those trilogies and them recreating certain characters, Ewan McGregor to me is like the only choice that you can have to be a young Alec Guinness. Honestly, yeah. And I am, I, just as a, again, a sidebar, because it's probably going to happen a couple times here, I'm so excited for Kenobi. As it you looks sh- so As you should be. And, you know, I just want to bring a point, since we're just as a side, and before we get back into all the other characters and, and the richness of that original film, I, you know how they've made um, Solo and they made uh, Rogue One yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I think that they have, they, if Disney wants to be smart about it, I just thought of this today, and I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before. I would actually like to see Tarkin's backstory and rise to power. Yeah. I think that would be a compelling movie or series. Yeah. Limited, mind you. It would have to be limited. So again, trying not to get into the expanded stuff, but you see, you do see some of that stuff. This is just quickly, you see some in Clone Wars and there is a book about it. Yeah, I would just... I would love to see a Tarkin movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that they should do that. And I think that that was the magic of it because the way that the script was written... We're introduced to these characters properly, one at a time. Can I ask you a question? You can sure. say no. Okay. Do you have, is there an actor you would put in the position, if you can think of it? What position? Of playing Tarkin. Oh, playing a young Tarkin. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't think of okay. one right at the moment. Obviously, they would have to be British. Obviously. Oh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he could do it. I don't disagree. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just sorry, I just had to think of it for yeah, a second. Yeah, but you like, were having an aneurysm thinking about <laughs> that. I was just trying to think, has Benedict Cumberbatch done anything Star Wars related or doing something related? I don't think he is. So yeah, that would work. That's that's a choice. I mean I yeah. could probably think of some other ones, but I, I think that he would be spectacular. Honestly, it'd be a good choice. He would he's he's a, he can play a slimy snake. Yeah. And he can play that cold military well, I mean, but honestly, Benedict Cumberbatch is a fantastic actor and can do anything anyway. Pretty so much, whatever. yeah. Let's talk about the way that the script was written. It was goes back to that old mythos of this is the journey where you have the humility, you have the idea that they are just kind of going to get out of from the skin of the teeth. Now, mind you, it took them three um, movies to do that because Luke is a bit of a Marty Stew in, in Mary uh, Marty Stew. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, Mary Stew is female. Marty Stew is male. He's yeah. he's a bit of a Marty Stew in the movie, and the fact that they don't really have that defeat that they get later on in the empire strikes back so and honestly yeah let's look at luke skywalker in that lens for just for just a minute so yeah is he a marty stew well let's look at this he has been told that he's essentially the chosen one the only real difficult things that he goes through is the loss of aunt brew and our uncle owen and but that starts like, him on the journey. That starts him on the journey, but he's just really sad about that for five seconds. Yeah. He doesn't really show any real emotion on well, that. But, th- but that's the beauty of the script and the beauty of taking the time to marinate and sit within the character. Because when we're first introduced to Luke, we have that wonderful John Williams score. It's it's longing, it's beautiful, it's soft, it's, it's completely different from the grandiose... Um, yeah theme that we got it's different from vader's theme it's different from leia's theme it's just that nice beautiful moment where we see him coming out of the domicile 
and you know with the twin sons and him looking out and we know that luke is at an age where he's excited to move on and amberu says Owen, he can't stay here forever. All of his friends are gone. And I think that's a, a very relatable thing for a lot of people once they reach that age. It's like they want to go out and find themselves and explore and all yeah, that Yeah, and stuff. I think that Mark Hamill did a fantastic job portraying that. To your point about him, like he's sad for about five seconds. Well, no, he's not. And I think that Hamill, you see that pain, you see that loss, but he also knows... There is nothing for me here now. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely nothing. Because the only thing that was tying him to Tatooine was his friends who have already gone off to the academy or and his aunt and uncle, and now they're dead. And his dedication to that. Because yeah. like he says, looks like I'm going nowhere because he was going to stay and help Uncle Owen. Well, and that's the thing is like when you're in a position like that where you have responsibility to your family, you are stuck making... Sometimes you're stuck making that choice. It's like, do I go out on my own? Or do I stay and continue continue my loyalty to my family? Yeah, and that's kind of like the beauty of it is the fact that he comes from this humble farming community. Mm-hmm. He comes from, like, he's living basically out in the countryside. It's a desert, obviously, but out in the countryside. And they're, they're water farmers. They're extracting the vapor from the air. Yeah. That's what they do. Um, you know, living amongst the indigenous people, the sand people, and sort of out there knowing how dangerous they can be. Yeah. Um, living amongst the Jawas, these scavengers, it's, it's you know, you go into town when and, you need to go into town, not just for fun. And as we've learned from, from further movies like Return of the Jedi and even the prequels and Book of Boba Fett, a lot of other dangers out in the sand. But yeah, anyway, a sarlacc pit for one, and that four-legged or forearm thing. But jeez. But let's talk. Let's <clears throat> talk about the worlds that were created in the Star Wars series. Uh, again, so let, again, just just the original trilogy. Yeah. They created these rich worlds that had hostile environments. Like when you think about it, I mean, you're on a desert planet, then yeah. we're on a swamp planet, we're on an ice planet. Where it's so hard for anything to be to habitate. Yeah, and I, I think that is is something that George Lucas is trying to say. I think he is is making a comment on the um, how resilient people can be, especially when they band together. Because like when they're on Hoth, it is the Rebel Alliance together on Hoth. Yeah, they are they are making that planet as hospitable as possible. They have ships that don't work in the cold they are using animals called tauntauns to get around the place and they are dealing with giant ice creatures called creatures called wampas yeah that want to eat them all while they're hiding from the empire all basically. while they're hiding from the empire they chose and not probably not by choice but they wound up on one of the worst planets they could wind up on just so they could hide yeah and looking at, I've seen criticism on it, but honestly, I love the idea of these sing, these single biome planets, like the desert planet, the snow planet, the, the swamp planet. I think that's really cool. One, it, it's a little easier for storytelling, but it really helps you kind of hone in on what this planet is without, without going too far into exposition. Yeah. You don't need all that exposition. And they, they continue that. Um, like you've got so starting off with a new hope, you've got 
And this is the thing I like about the prequel, the original trilogy, is that each act takes place on a planet. So you've got Act One of Star Wars, which is Tatooine. Right. You go to Act Two, which is the Death Star. You go to Act Three, which is Yavin Four, the fourth moon of Yavin. And then, it, then of course, from Yavin Four, we've got the, the space battle scene. And then in Empire Strikes Back, starts off on Hoth, and then you wind up on Dag- Dagobah. And then the third act is Bespin. And then you've got Return of the Jedi. It starts off on Tatooine. Then it moves to the uh, the uh, Endor. And then you've got... Yeah, and Dagobah's back in there. So. Yeah, they, yeah. So it, it's really neat how they split the time up in these movies by planet. You, you get a sense. You get to get a good feeling and understanding of these planets. Because you get to spend actual time with them during and, the movie. You know, in that original trilogy, that's what makes going to Bespin so great because we've been in these savage hostile planets that have almost a diesel punk feel to them with the industrial feeling of the mechanics. They're heavy, they're pondering, they're primitive, they're everything. And then you go to Bespin, which is Cloud City, and you can tell that it's a place of wealth and privilege far from the reach of the Empire, so they think. Yeah. And it's almost like they're saying that up here in Cloud City, we're above everything else that is down here. Well, yeah, and I would say that's the whole point of it being Cloud City. Yeah. Like, they're, they are... There's a part in it where Lando says to Leia, you truly belong with us here in the clouds. Yeah. And that is that entire sentence is indicative of that feel. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to see that we have a situation where the Empire is so destructive and so far-reaching that you have the privilege and the poor coming together. Yeah. Because if they don't, everything is lost. Yeah. And that's completely true. Yeah. I just, I, and that's the thing, like the tech that was created in these worlds, because the first thing that we're told, the very first thing we learn about the Star Wars universe back in 1977, before the movies even begun, is Star Wars, da-da-da, you know, huge yeah, John scroll. Williams score. Then the scroll, a long time ago in a galaxy far, 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 far away. away. And so, okay, now we know where this is taking place. Doesn't matter what the galaxy is called, we know where it's taking place. And so we see this machinery that feels primitive a long time ago. Yeah. But futuristic, hey, in, in a galaxy far, far away, who knows what their technology and bio creatures are. And let, let's talk about that opening scene of A New Hope. So the scroll, the scroll happens, and then the camera pans down. Now, the Tanta 4 is a fairly big ship in itself, but then it's followed up by the Star Destroyer, which just keeps going and coming over the the camera and imagine me seeing that as an eight-year-old kid for the first time and just thinking holy my favorite thing my all-time favorite thing you will never get an opening like that in another movie the only one that compares to that to me is jaws fair yeah fair so i love how they ape that in Spaceballs. Spaceballs, yeah. Because yeah. then the thing that they do with Spaceballs is like they make it seem like it's coming to an end and then it just continues. And it's like three minutes of just this ship 
passing over but the camera. But that's parody, right? I know, and, I know. And, and, that's, I know. and Mel Brooks does it better than anybody else. Agreed. But, I mean, but see, that gets back to our original point where we were talking about the influence that Star Wars has had as a whole. Because it influenced science fiction from well, that point forward. I've always said, okay, I've always said that the Star Wars overall franchise does not exist without Star Trek. And the Star Trek overall franchise does not exist without Star Wars. Yeah, um, somebody once described it. It was a documentary on um, the new Star Trek series with Chris Pine and, yeah. and Zachary Quinto and the like. And they in the one of the um, uh, bonus features, they were talking about that. I can't remember which was, but one is a symphony, the other is pop music. Yeah. So, and like, look at just going back to the original Star Wars here. So George Lucas has said that he enjoyed Star Trek when it was out in the sixties, and that much is obvious. I think that there is definitely some influence there. Yeah. Obviously, George Lucas had more of a budget than Star Trek did back in well, the Well, Star 60s, Trek but... was a TV show at that Yeah, exactly. Point. And, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because, I mean, obviously, it's been said, and we know that Star Trek was basically wagon train in space. Right. Whereas I feel like Star Wars, even though it, it has, like, the wizard and the knights and all that kind of stuff, it feels very much like a spaghetti western in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And I think we were talking about this before the, the podcast, it, Star Wars and New Hope kind of marries the whole um, spaghetti western and fantasy, fantasy yeah. and all that stuff together. Um, but even go, going back to Star Trek for a second, so you've got Star Wars, which became a huge hit, and now Paramount wants their huge hit. So then they contact Gene Roddenberry, and all of a sudden, Star Trek the motion picture is a thing. That would not have happened without Star Wars. And you know what? It absolutely would not have happened without Star Wars because guess who did the special effects? ILM. Industrial Light Magic. So, and, uh, you know, we can talk about the ongoing feud between Star Wars and Star Trek fans for a second. I've never understood it. I love both. I love them equally. Yeah, and... you can love both because like, to me that's like saying, hey, John, do you like pizza or do you like spaghetti? Well, I like them both. Why can't I like them both? They're both Italian food. Yeah. Well, tech, well technically not. Well, okay, fair, whatever. Um, technically ancient, going back in history, noodles and pizza are Chinese. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, the more you know. know. All right. So that's kind of the thing. So one doesn't exist without the other. I don't think pizza, Star... Pizza the Hut. Pizza... <laughs> I don't know if it's real, but somebody posted this thing on Instagram, and it was a Pizza the Hut action figure playset, and I'm just like, I need that. Okay, well, we're... Okay, back we're, to Star we're, Wars. We're off. We're back off. to Star Wars. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and there, there's also, like, this clearly... I don't know what it is with writers, but there's really that influence. I don't know if Lucas intended it, but it's the same way J.K. Rowling did. There's that feel of World War II, in a way. Yeah, and I think at this point... With Star Wars, World War II was much fresher in people's minds. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, like you can see that with the battle with the X-Wing fighters. We, you and I were talking about some of the technology. Um, and in that original series, it's all very tied in. It's very beautifully put together. Nothing feels out of place. Yeah. Um, you know, even like the fact that, you know, Luke basically... This is kid with a car. His land speeder is a hovercraft, and it, but it feels very 
very rough still. It feels like the, the planet would eat it alive in, in a way. Like, you can see the rust. You can see yeah. the dinge. You can see... It looks lived in. Yeah, it and, looks and when used. they go into Moss Eisley, I mean, we know the description. A wretched place of scum and villainy. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, like, there is nothing hospitable about any of these planets, whether it's the forest moon of Endor, whether it's the swamp of Dagobah, whether it's an asteroid that they're hiding from the Empire and getting swallowed by <laughs> some giant worm with Minox in its throat. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing hospitable. So that's, again, what makes going to Cloud City so rich and wonderful. Well, yeah, like, that's that's kind of the thing. is, it, And Cloud City creates this false sense of security when they get there that is as soon as is completely blown for the audience as soon as uh 3po is shot to pieces yeah but and that's where the 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 sense of dramatic irony comes in for us because at this point we know something is up they don't the characters don't and we get to forgive lando too because we know he's caught between a rock and a hard place yeah and that's kind of the thing is that lando at first we're like this guy seemed cool no, he's not cool. But at the end of it, he does redeem himself a little bit by going by trying to get Han back, and then obviously completely redeems himself in Return of the Jedi by helping rescue Han. Yeah, and you know, and, and you can see that as he keeps giving the side eye to his man at arms. Yeah, good old Lobot. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> and then he comes alive. He gives them the signals like, okay, yeah. so you know that Lando, as soon as the Empire came in. He knew that, okay, I'm going to play their game, I'm going to play ball, but in my back pocket. And he always he has his people on Cloud City first and foremost in his mind and in his heart. Because one of the first things he does once they've, once Boba Fett's off, I think it was, I think it's after Boba Fett flies off with Han, he gets on the microphone and says, hey, everybody, get out of Dodge, the Empire's here. Yeah. Like, yeah. he wants to make sure his people are safe. And that that's the whole motivation behind him. So he's not in a good position. No. And, you know, and it, that's great that we can say, okay, fantastic. And you know what's interesting, and I don't want to delve too much into this, but what's really fascinating about that is the choice of having Billy D. Williams play Lando Calrissian. Because what we were missing, what was missing up until that point was the same thing that we had with Alec Guinness and... Uh, Peter Cushing. We didn't have that well-known actor who was um, anchoring the, well, yeah. the play. Like, that's the thing, is, like, if you look at the main cast, Harrison Ford was a carpenter, worked on movie sets. Yeah. Mark Camel was a complete unknown, and Carrie Fisher, she was the daughter of... She was the daughter of Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, but as an actress herself, was unknown. Yeah. So you have these, and honestly, obviously, they went with these unknowns because they were probably cheap as chips. No, but if you think about it, though, Nick, I mean, if you're inventing a whole new world here and you want your audience to be invested in it, you've already got your anchors with Peter Cushing and uh, Alec Guinness, or Alec Guinness. Right. And so now I know Mark Hamill completely as Luke Skywalker and nothing else. I know Harrison Ford as... Han Solo and nothing else. I know Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia and nothing else. And it allows me to immerse myself in that picture. That's fair enough. That's true. Because it, 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 it creates a level of... It removes the pretense from, 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 the, from the roles. It removes 
you know, what you think you know about them. Like, if you look at even newer movies where they had, let's say, Chris Hemsworth play Thor, well, that was his big first role. Yeah, and you were able to buy him as Thor. The only thing that you would have ever known him from, you would have had to have been from Australia and watched a soap opera. Yeah, or even uh, Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Like, even, like, Chris Hemsworth is one thing. I look at Chris Hemsworth and I see Chris Hemsworth, but when I look at Tom Hiddleston, every time I look at Tom Hiddleston, I see Loki. Yeah, but when when Hemsworth was first playing yeah, yeah, Thor, yeah. you saw Thor. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, like you've got these this this um, trio of actors who are unknown and are and working well together. Yeah, they have like that's the thing is they have great chemistry together. They work so well together, and you see a lot, like you've seen backstage, like a lot of candid backstage pictures from especially from Empire Strikes Back. I can completely buy that uh, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill are brother and sister. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting too, because when we look back at those movies, and it's one of those things that I never even thought about it, but I'm thinking about it now, she's the only female in those original trilogies. I mean, like, yes, there's Aunt Peru, yes, there's... There are some some in the very background. Aunt Brew, I would think, is the only other... I'm trying to think. She's other than maybe Ula... I don't think Ula is ever named on screen. Well, the I think dancing she's the, girl? Yeah, I think Jabba's she's the, dancing girl. I think she's the only. Well, I'm, what I'm saying, I think she's the only female character that's named on screen. Size, yeah, size noodles isn't even. I don't think she's. I don't think anyone, any other female. Yeah, but is, I'm, I'm talking about in, in the fact that you have, like, never mind, like an extra or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you have Princess Leia and Amperu. Okay, so we know in the '70s, we know in the '80s. Producers, filmmakers, directors were not really... Um, they weren't worried con- about diversity. They weren't worried about it. They weren't conscious about diversity. And it was really just who... But but my point, though, isn't even about the diversity in that because we can have that discussion. I mean, that's what makes uh, Lando Calrissian so rich in the fact that it brings diversity into this world. Yeah. But what my point is, is that imagine how strong the character of Princess Leia has to be well that's true because what happened look at what oh, happens there's that to general her. lady too i forgot about her right mon mothma yeah. right okay um but if you look at what princess leia goes through in a new hope alone she doesn't just lose her her parents don't just get killed her whole planet goes up in smoke. And she still can, keeps that resolve. And Carrie Fisher did it beautifully, where you see that depression, where she's stuck in the cell. You see that fear, but she's not going to let it show. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you're here to rescue me? Let's go. And then like we we they turn it on its ear because we're expecting this princess to be a damsel in distress. And she's like, oh, what was your plan? Okay, let's go. Oh. And she gets them out of that holding she, cell. She has some of the best lines. Can you in the get movie. this walking carpet out of my way? Oh, my favorite is you came. You came here uh, when looking at the Millennium Falcon. You came here in this thing. You're braver than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just that wonderful <laughs> delivery that Carrie Fisher had. That you know, she she left us too soon, unfortunately. Oh, God. But I mean, this is what makes that character rich: is that she has this very strong, aggressive. Uh, assertive, not aggressive, this very strong, assertive side, but she also brings in that softer side. She brings in that romance. She brings in the vulnerability. She brings in the compassion. When you have a group of friends, 
and a, a close, tight-knit group of friends. Certain members of that group fill certain roles. And there's always somebody in that group who has... I don't want to say the parental role, but the one that kind of takes care of everyone else in the group. But it, and that yeah. is very much Princess Leia. But it, it's interesting, too, because it's what works in Star Trek also works in Star Wars. When you have your three main characters all having different personalities and all yep. being different sides of that personality. Whereas, you know, Luke is this um, spiritual side Han is this rogue side, let's just go in, guns a-blazing kind of thing. And then you have Princess Leia, who's both. Yeah, yeah. And then you have Chewie, who's just like, all right, let's go. Oh, you know, and, <laughs> you know, let's talk about Chewbacca for a Please, minute. Please, I love an, Chewie. What an interesting character he is, because here it is set up in A New Hope, basically to be almost an animal. Almost. Almost. He's not, obviously, he's a sentient being. He has thoughts, he has emotions, he has uh, skills, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it's interesting when you think about the culmination of that, because Chewie doesn't get a medal. Um, they don't give medals to droids, obviously. And yet C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewie were just as instrumental as in destroying the Death Star and rescuing Princess Leia as Han and Luke were. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how they initially saw him, but then how it's been a little more elevated. So let's actually let's talk about the roles that everybody had in the destruction of the first Death Star. It's really an interesting thing because <clears throat> you have six characters that, that are there. Five come in the Millennium Falcon and Princess Leia's already there. And from the get-go, everybody has something to do. Everybody has an assigned role in this story. And they have to basically separate to do yeah. it. And then as they as they separate, like, okay, so you look at it. Um, Han and Luke have to go find Leia. Obi-Wan goes to de deactivate the tractor beam. And R2 and C-3PO have to go hide. That is their... <laughs> and Chewie, goes, Chewie, of course, has to go off with Han and Luke. Well, Chewie has to be the distraction. He yeah. has to be... He's the, yeah. he's the muscle and he's the distraction. So... Here's the thing. As this as this act, as Act 2 of Star Wars progresses, their missions actually change. So, well, except for Luke and Han and Chewie, they've rescued the princess. They've done what they need to do. Um, Obi-Wan has has turned off the tractor beam. He's done what he needs to do. Yeah, 3PO and R2 and th are doing like the technical stuff. Yeah, they, they, they've hidden. They've done what they need to do. So the missions well, have changed. But it's, it's not just hide. They they hold down the fort and they're the ones that save them from the, yeah, the exactly. trash compactor. Yeah, that's exactly what my point I'm yeah. making. So you've got you've now got Leia who's gone from prisoner to she's leading this group I'm of idiots. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. <laughs> These group of lovable morons to get back to the Millennium Falcon. Obi-Wan is facing Darth Vader and C-3PO and R2-D2 are trying to get them out of the tr the, the, the quartet, out of the trash yeah. compactor. So it's really interesting how Lucas wrote this to give them something to do. And I think comparing that to not just new Star Wars movies, but new movies in general, you would see a scene like this and then certain characters would just disappear. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, not, without getting into it, that was sort of one of my problems with the prequels is the fact that, yes, R2-D2 and C-3PO are the comedic team like Abbott and Costello, whatever, right? They they bring a sense of comedy to it that I think went too far in the prequels. But 
anyway. That's a, that, that is definitely a discussion for the future. Yeah. We'll talk about the prequels yeah. in another show. But, so, but yeah, I mean, the, everybody has this, this clear, developed plan without having a plan. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, well, what's our plan? Well, we're going to get there, and then we'll see what we're going to do. We'll wing it. We'll hope for the best. We'll, we'll X-wing it? <laughs> no, we'll A-wing it. <laughs> Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. so, so, I, I mean, can't every, believe every, you said that. I can. So, everybody loves Chewbacca for obvious reasons because, yes, you have this. I, I guess, like, in the Wookiee evolution, they were quite vicious at one point, but became civilized. So, okay, just going by what we know in A New Hope, we're introduced to Chewie as the Wookiee co pilot of Han Solo through. Obi-Wan meets him in the in the cantina. Yeah, and we know the, the biggest life lesson is let the Wookiee win. Exactly, because you don't want to tick off a Wookiee. Wookiees, Chewie is obviously incredibly loyal to Han, and vice versa. Yeah, and at that point, we don't know why. Yeah, but we don't need to know why. No, we don't. We just know that they are. And Chewie obviously has some, te- like, a lot of technical know-how because he is a co-pilot on a Corellian space corvette. Mm-hmm. So he he knows what he's doing, and he's my he's got my favorite moment in the Force Awakens where he's talking to the nurse, and the nurse is like, "Oh, I know. Yes, you must have been scared." <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to. You know, I don't think we ever did talk about in Solo how Han knew how to speak Wookiees, but anyway. Well, you you know you, you learn, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not comparing Chewbacca to a pet dog. Don't get me wrong, but when you are around something like your pet for enough years you get to understand their emotions you get to understand their language they get to understand your language i mean think about it you've got a pet in germany who speaks basically i'm sitting there going does that dog speak german well also i i do think just all things considering i honestly think han solo is the pet in that relationship I'm not sure Woody is, but uh, the, the the truth of the matter is they have a great dynamic that works well. Yeah, they have learned to understand Wookie. One of the greatest things, if you can find it, aliens, go look it up. Is you will actually see there's some back vaccine footage of Peter Mayhew in the Chewbacca costume walking through and speaking with and saying lines. He actually said lines. Oh, did he? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. And then it was came back with the But I mean, jeepers creepers, they hear those lines. It's hysterical. Well, like, there's the other thing. David Prowse, uh, for those who don't know, David Prowse was the man in the Darth Vader costume. He did the lines on set. Yeah. So basically, you've got Darth Vader's line being delivered by this big cockney guy, but... <laughs> yeah, I- but James Earl Jones, what a great voice for Darth Vader. But there's the other thing. The intention for um, for C-3PO, Anthony Daniels wasn't going to be the voice. He, it was uh, George Lucas originally wanted him to sound like a used car salesman. And then I don't remember who it was. It may have been his wife. It may have been one of the producers that said, hey, what is wrong with this guy's voice? This is perfect. And yeah. George Lucas went, Sure. You know, it's fascinating, too, that um, these characters can speak both droid and Wookiee and a plethora of other languages out there in the universe. Yeah. Because Han Solo sits down with Greedo and, like, understands him perfectly. <laughs> I, I, know, I would assume in Han's line of work, you would have to... Like, like look at it. Um, Han understands 
uh, uh, Rodian. He understands Wookiees. He understands Hutties. Like, Han Solo is an intelligent character if you yeah, really okay, look at it. Now we're getting into some of the plot holes, right? <laughs> Where it's like Luke shows up to speak with Jabba the Hutt and he can speak perfect Hutt. It's like, okay, um, how many languages? Like, I don't know. I'm impressed when somebody can speak two languages, let yeah. alone multiple languages. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you think they teach Huttese in Tatooine schools? I don't. Well, you know what? Maybe. Do they, you know, like what language do the, it's the, an elective. Do the Tuscan Raiders speak? What language? They speak Jawa. Yeah. You know? Jawaese. What language do they call Tuscan Raiders speak? I don't know. Um. <sighs> And that's really kind of interesting. You have this one little area of Tatooine, and if you look at it, it's not... I, I don't know how big the area is that includes the, the Lars family homestead, the Hutt Castle, Moss Eisley, Moss Espa, where the Tuscan Raiders live, all that stuff. But it can't be that big because it's traversable by land speeder and swoop bike and all that. So having all these different cultures and languages in this one little localized area is really kind of neat. Yeah, it is. And of course, they, they live on the outskirts. But I mean, I think it's just something that has, to your point, perhaps it is something that is taught in school, perhaps, yeah. because you are dealing with these multiple uh, races that have their own language that you have to speak. Either that or there is some sort of universal translator that they have that just went undiscussed. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But it's... Okay, I'm going to ask you. First Star Wars movie, the very first one, New Hope, who is your favorite character? Well, when I was a child, it was Ben Kenobi. Okay. Um, for me, I actually do have to say it is Darth Vader. Yeah. Because Darth Vader is such... He's so frightening looking. Like, well, when he you is. first see you him... You never saw anything like Darth Vader before. No. Like, you, you see him, and he's so he's, imposing yeah. and dark. And, that, and that's where I think a lot of movies, and not just the, the prequels or other things, a lot of movies fail, is that it, this movie gave you time. It was that moment where we alluded to it earlier. Princess Leia's ship is under attack from the, the Empire fleet. They grab the ship. Mm -hmm. Not a word has been spoken yet. Mm -hmm. And we hear the alarm and the troop, the rebel troops come in and they're there and they're waiting. And they're just that moment for the, the stormtroopers to come in. Mm -hmm. And we see the stormtroopers who are all clad in white, which at this point is typically a good guy color. Right. And so it's sort of subverses expectations. And then when all the smoke has settled, in walks this shadow of a figure. Who towers over all the storm Says nothing. And just observes the situation at that point. And then the next time we see him, he is barking out all kinds of orders with such heat and such venom and such gravitas that only James Earl Jones could have brought to it. And yeah. on an aside, I think it's funny when you get to watch um, people that have taken something like Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice or James Earl Jones' I was voice from up. other movies and <laughs> dubbed it over. Aliens, on YouTube, 
there is a video called Vader Sessions, and they take voice clips from other James Earl Jones movies and put it over Darth, the Darth Vader scenes, and it is pure, pure comedy genius. Oh, it's hilarious. It's, it is so funny. It's it's really, it's, it's a marvelous thing. But, like, there's the thing, is, like, when you look at Darth Vader, and you look at um, other villains that have shown up in the pantheon over the years like i look at oh not yeah. major villains not major villains but like if you look at uh, and I'm, I'm going into the depths of 90s pop culture hell here but if you look at leslie nielsen's character from um from surf ninjas if you look at kilocon from superhuman samurai cyber squad or even lord zed from power rangers you can see the influence of darth vader in there lord zed has the the, 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 the this big red visor for eyes dark eyes you can't see anything he has the grill for a mouth you've got Kilocon who has the black robe and the helmet you've got Leslie Nielsen who's just basically dressed up as a black samurai and it's hilarious if you have not seen Surf Ninjas but you see the influence that Darth Vader has had on the pantheon of villains throughout the decades and one of the things about Darth Vader is he is and I think, inarguably, the most iconic villain since, I don't know, you'd have to say maybe Dracula, like I, maybe I, Merciless, perhaps, in pop culture. He is just number one. I, I can't argue against that. I mean, pop culture has had its share of iconic villains. It has, yeah. Like, even, even from... Khan, from Star Trek. Khan, from Star Trek. You've got the Borg from Star Trek. You've got Megatron from Transformers. You've got the Green Goblin from Spider-Man. But none of these... You've got the Joker from Batman. You got, you, we could name them all. We can name them all. But nothing is really as... It, like When you think of Star Wars, I don't think... You, when you think of Star Wars characters, I don't think the first thing people really think of is Luke. Is when you think of it's movies Vader. and you think of movie villains, you immediately go to Darth Vader. Yeah, and he has this incredible look, and he's so huge and so scary that yeah, you it, it just burns into your eyes this visage of this big evil man. Yeah, and unlike I will say, unlike Tarkin, yeah. Vader is legitimate evil, and he looks like legitimate evil. Yeah, I don't want to, I'm not, when I say this, I'm not going to, I'm not squatting on other fandoms. Yeah. Okay. But let's say for sake of argument, don't come for me. I'm just making a point. If the Harry Potter series never existed, I don't think that they would have had an alternate universe effect. But I can't imagine where our world would have been in terms of technology, in terms of advancement, in terms of all the influences that Star Wars has held. Yeah. Well, I mean, looking at Star... And again, Star... Like, I think Star Wars and Star Trek have a symbiotic relationship. And you look at people that have created technology based off of star trek based off of star wars it is i mean i don't think anyone's going to create magic in the, anytime soon but yeah it, it's 
the, 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 the influence I, is there. The yeah, and again, I only use that as an example because it's a big deal, yeah. right? I love Harry Potter. Don't get me wrong, folks. Well, I mean, let, I mean, let's look at something a little more cult statusy, like Army of Darkness. I don't see people making uh, robotic, like chainsaw hands. Chainsaw hands. Although that would be cool. I'd be into that. Well, I mean, I, I'd lock I, yeah. my hand out for for that. But I mean, <sighs> that, but I'm just saying that out of all of the, these things, it has had the most influence both in pop culture and in, in generational lives in Star Wars influence is yeah you can see it in pop culture you can see it in technology you can see it in filmmaking you can see it in storytelling books comic books all that stuff the influence is there and I don't just mean books based off of Star Wars comic books based off of Star Wars you can look at different stories and you can get a feel that yeah, this guy, the guy that wrote this, probably really likes Star Star Wars. Yeah, Aliens. Um, we have just scratched the surface of Star Wars on this special uh, edition of Area Fifty One and a Half. Nick, let me ask you this question. Okay. Et Jedi or not? Oh, totally Jedi. He even <laughs> recognizes Yoda. Absolutely a Jedi. And he uses the force to get them in the, the bicycle. And I could so see that. I could so see E.T. being a Jedi. So, with it being May... Maybe a Padawan, though. Well, yeah. Yeah, E.T.'s... E.T.'s he doesn't have he, a lightsaber. Pretty sure he's a kid. He hasn't made his lightsaber. No, no. Um, he hasn't gone off with David Tennant to make his lightsaber. Anyway... <laughs> Nick, how can our aliens get a hold of us? Well, they can get a hold of us on Twitter at the area 518 You can find us on Instagram, the area 518 as well as Twitch. You can also find us on Facebook by looking up the area 51 and a half. And don't forget to rate us on Spotify and Apple Pods. That helps us grow. And please share us with everyone you know, because I know you have friends and family that are going to love our content. And we want to see our channel grow. Thank you for joining us here at Area 51 and a Half. Until next time, this is John Allen. And Snyderman 501, Nick Snyder. Signing off. That was a fun episode. Well, yeah, I mean, how could we not talk about Star Wars when we made the fortune right there? Yeah. 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 Yeah.